with a better result. They get higher ratings. They get more yeses. They get more congratulations and more sales and more bottom line dollars. So you by forcing yourself to physically change not only your attitude but your gestures, and your gestures are linked to the attitude. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo, as always. Today, we're talking with Alan Pease. He's a very Australian, as you'll hear from the accent, body language expert. He's also the author slash co-author of how many books, Jason? 18 books. Jeez, that's a lot. Yeah, 18 bestsellers. That's prolific. Right. Prolific. I mean, that's 18 bestsellers. Who knows? Maybe he's written a couple stinkers that didn't make the list. I don't know. 10 were number (laughs) ones, given seminars in 70 countries. These books are everywhere. This was one of the first books I read on body language, the definitive book of body language. It's one of those that is kind of like a dictionary of body language. And I thought, if I just memorize this, you know, I'll be able to read people like a book. Today, we're going to be tolerating a bit of pseudoscience here in this one, but that, in my opinion, is okay because Alan Pease is OG, and a lot of what he has to say has generated results for a lot of business people, politicians. It's a very unique and interesting inside look into the world of body language and body language training. We'll talk about something called the compliments trick and how we can use this for ourselves or more likely spot someone else trying to use this type of thing on us. I mean, this is my bag, right? He taught Vladimir Putin and a bunch of Russian former Soviet politicians nonverbal communication and body language so that they learned how to deal with Westerners a bit more. I mean, come on, Putin, world stage, this is pretty cool. And we'll uncover how to spot a potential liar using body language, clusters of nonverbal signals, and a few other little tricks. Don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways here from Alan Pease. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Now, let's hear from Alan Pease. So, Alan, thank you so much for coming on. I think the definitive book of body language is probably one of the first books that I read on the subject. And I remember reading it and thinking, I just have to memorize all this and then I'll be able to tell what everybody's thinking magically, immediately. Well, you know, that's not an uncommon thing too, Jordan, that people do think that. They think they can read a book and go out and do it immediately, but it's a lot more difficult than it first seems. The reason being that when you're face-to-face talking with somebody, it's hard enough to remember what you're talking about and what they just said, let alone did they scratch their nose or did they move to their eyes to the right or did they scratch under their armpit. Like learning a foreign language, you have to learn words and phrases and vocabulary. Eventually, you can speak it as it was without having to think about it. So essentially, you have to be able to look at all of these types of body language and communications, but the part that's confusing here is, so what? So I can look at somebody's picture in a book and say, oh, their feet aren't pointed towards me. That must mean they want to go. But there's got to be more to it. There's more context along with this. And as I was researching your work, and I came across a talk that must have been from the 70s, because in this demo video that we watched you're smoking cigarettes and stuff, and you're throwing the cigarette. When you're done with it, you throw it on the stage, just off somewhere on the ground, and blowing the smoke around. And I thought, wow, this must have been quite a while ago, if you can just light up on a stage at a TV sound studio. You'd be arrested for that now in Australia or the United States. You're absolutely right. (laughs) I thought that was really funny. I just thought, what time machine have I gotten into where this works? But there was a lot of really interesting context involved with this, because even the way that somebody exhales cigarette smoke can, but doesn't necessarily do, signal their intent, signal their mindset. And I wanna back up the truck to how you learned this, because I think with anybody who has great talent, anybody who has a great set of skills, there's a story behind it. How did you start learning this from such a young age? Back in the 1950s, my father was the local district 
insurance agent for a large insurance company in rural Australia in the south. Back in those days, the insurance agents collected premiums every month or every quarter because there were no credit cards or checks. They go around and they'd pick up the money. And that was how they prospected for new business. They'd try and get their timing so that they'd meet the husband or the wife or meet the neighbours or try to meet other family members and, and sell more business. That's their main prospecting technique. And after school, when I was five years of age, my, my father would take me with him two, three, sometimes four nights a week because it was mostly women who were answering the door. And he was a, a young single bloke, on a single guy on his own, and you just don't get in. But if you've got a five-year-old with you, you just about always get in. And if they wouldn't let him get in, he'd say things like, would you mind if Alan has a glass of water? Could he use your toilet? So I, I spent four nights a week peeing in people's toilets and, <laughs> and sitting around tables watching my dad sell insurance. It would say to me in advance to keep me interested. He'd say, now, look, if the premium's too high on something I'm talking to them about, they might maybe sit back, they might cross their arms, they might put their hand over their face, they might look down. And he'd give me these clues and he'd say, Alan, look for those things and if you see one of them, give me a wink. So he was just trying to keep me interested because back in the 50s, the insurance agents who were the cutting-edge salespeople of the day, they learned how to sell and how to communicate of vinyl records by the likes of Earl Nightingale and Dale Carnegie and, the, and these types. So I so rather than doing homework after school, I spent my life with my dad sitting around watching him negotiate insurance. And I thought this was perfectly normal that everybody did this. And so by the time I got to be 11 years of age, I got my first job selling door-to-door, knocking on doors. And I could use those skills to look at people when they're answering the door to see whether they're going to tell me to go and drop dead or whether they give me half a chance of presenting my presentation or whether they're likely to buy or not. This continued right through the 1960s and the early 70s. and 72, I decided to put it into a book because it was such a popular thing at seminars. I was training salespeople or salesmen because back in those periods too, you've got to remember, Jordan, the salespeople were just about all men. But now it's about 66% of the world's salesmen are now women. So this part on reading people's body around the table was such a fascinating thing for me. I decided to put it into a book, which in 1976, I just called it Body Language, and it went number one worldwide. And that's where I got started into the whole communications era of teaching nonverbal communication. So you got interested in this because your dad was a salesman and basically spent your formative years as a sales prop from the sound of it. Yeah, pretty much. I was a sales tool. I'd be sitting there and I'd be, as I said, drinking water and peeing in toilets and, and watching people, whether they were sitting back or touching their nose or moving their legs. And I started to record all this stuff and I could predict to my father uh, what they were doing, uh, what movements they were making as they were saying certain things. Because one thing we know about body language now, it's an outward reflection of your emotional condition. In other words, whatever emotions you're feeling is likely to be revealed in a gesture, posture, movement, expression, and so on. So the art of reading body language is simply you're reading a person's emotional condition, how they're feeling. You then match it up with what you hear them saying in the circumstances and the context under which you see it happening. And that allows you, when you become pretty good at this, to get a feel about what could be going on in their head. And that's why it's such a powerful guide to where outcomes might be in any face-to-face encounter. So let's break that down a little bit. You said that the body language as we've said many times on the show, is a reflection of someone's internal state. So we take that body language and then we put it in the context with which we find ourselves. And there were other elements that you just mentioned. Can we go a little slower and kind of break down each of those elements? Because I think where people go wrong is they say, well, body language says this and then it means that, and they leave out context. And then once we start adding in context, we leave out maybe even some other types of context, like, oh, well, he did it in a group of other body language. Yeah, but also it's cold, so you gotta throw out these other signals that might not necessarily be leading you in the proper direction. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, if you look at the biggest mistakes that people make in it, they assume that someone crosses their arms means that could be negative, but that's not necessarily the case. Now, whenever you analyse body language, particularly when we're doing it in a training class or in a session, I quite often will use still shots because a still shot will isolate a gesture so we can pick it apart and analyse it. But that's not, how, in fact, how you read it in real life. In real life, it's a language that has words, phrases and context. If you're a female brain, you're going to be around two to three times better at doing this than your male counterparts. Women are much better at certainly telling lies. They're three to four times better at uncovering a lie in a face-to-face encounter. We say to men everywhere, you know, don't lie to women who know you. You just never do this because your chances of getting away with it are pretty small. Call her on the phone, send her an SMS, but don't do it face-to-face because you're going to go down the drain if you do this. If you look at, say, the crossing arms gesture, which is, you mentioned before is a typical example. Someone crosses their arms, somebody says, well, okay, they're negative, they're hostile, they're not receptive. In fact, that largely is true because one of the things we found in researching crossed arms gestures, if we get an audience of people to cross their arms and their legs to listen to a group of informations or a sales presentation or somebody who's putting forward a proposal, that audience, first thing they do is they pay attention less. They can recall less of what was said by the speaker when they've got their arms crossed. This is where we've told this audience to intentionally cross their arms. And so we've got the gesture, we've made the gesture to see if it affected their attitude, because we know that the attitude of a person, their emotions, is likely to reveal the gesture. So what we wanted to discover about 15 years ago was, if you intentionally make gestures, does it change your attitude? And the answer is, yes, it does. Your brain becomes fooled into thinking, if you've got your arms crossed, that you're paying less attention, you're talking shorter sentences to the person, you're more factual, more critical, and less likely to remember what they say favorably. Now, that means, very simply, if you put an audience or a person in a cold room, put a person in a cold room, they pay attention for longer. That's true, they do, Jordan, but they're more negative and critical. And when they think back about you, they're not really positive about the whole thing. And so that's why you need a 21 degrees centigrade, which is about 72 degrees Fahrenheit in a room to get your best result with people, unless you're going to grill them like the FBI, where you put the temperature up or you put it down, which can affect your emotions. So back on, on arm crossing. So if you and I are talking and you've just said something and I don't feel comfortable with what you just said, I don't like it and maybe I'm not comfortable with you or you've said something that's really switching me off, leaning back and crossing my arms might be two of the things that could happen. Let's say you're in Chicago right now on a bus stop. Not real warm weather there right now. So there's somebody sitting at a bus stop with their arms and legs crossed. Does that mean they're negative and hostile? Well, man, it means they're cold. They're freezing. However, having said that, we also know because of the fact that they're sitting with their arms and legs crossed, they are less receptive to what anybody's saying, are less likely to remember you positively. In other words, the gesture causes the attitude in the same way the attitude causes the gesture. Now, this becomes really good because you can manipulate your own emotions. So if you've got to go face-to-face, for example, to an interview where maybe it's a job interview, maybe it's a big sale, a big presentation, and you're really nervous because you you don't want to blow it. You've got one chance at this. And what most people do, they start thinking about what they're going to do wrong. see themselves as screwing it up and forgetting their lines or or dropping things or not looking confident. And as a result of that, that's become self-fulfilling prophecy. So what you do by taking on specific confidence gestures and practicing these physically behind a door with nobody looking at you, you can change your attitude around. Because if you hold a particular gesture for two minutes or more, you begin to experience the emotion that matches it. In a nervous situation, if you take on confidence gestures, you can reverse a negative attitude into a confident one. So I know that power posing, what you're referring to right now, having the attitude, of course, signal the gesture, but also having the gesture signal the attitude. It's definitely the case, according to scientific research, that the attitude will indicate or influence the gesture, right? So we know that confident people will appear confident. However, there's been some scientific difficulty at recreating the results that would show 
that the gesture can actually influence the attitude over a period of time. So the power posing thing is awesome, right? Except for the fact that science is kind of going, hey, I'm not sure this is working and there's a lot of methodology issues with it. So have you found that in your research as well? Because science is having a tough time keeping up with Amy Cuddy and that whole power posing type of skill set. Well, you're absolutely right. That's true. And scientists often have a serious issue with a lot of the things with human communication because it's such a, a wispy thing. It's hard to nail it down to say this is the results. In a business context, it can be more accurate with nailing the result because what we found by changing specific whether somebody behaves or what they say or how they interact with someone, by practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing that so that they put that into their presentations, you can get a direct result by measuring how many yeses, how many sales they'll get at the end. In fact, you can put a dollar value on it, which is probably more valuable overall than it would be if you did it scientifically, because doing it scientifically is very hard. We wrote a best-selling book, you probably recall, called Why Men Don't Listen, Women Can't Read Maps. And one of the things that we talked about in there was that Female brain people, we'll call them women for this exercise, but even though 20% of men have female operating brains, that female brain people can speak somewhere between four to 6,000 words a day versus two to 3,000 words for a male brain person. So women in simple terms probably speak about twice to two and a half times as much as men. And then that, that spawned a whole series of scientific research where they're hooking people up with voice-activated machines to show how many words that you actually speak. And they got some interesting results out of that. And Sometimes the scientists would start off wanting to prove results. So they decide what result they want, then they try to find the research that right. it, which is pointless stuff. We use the same machines to do it and got the same results because with a word, for that research, we call tone of voice a word as well. For example, mm, yeah, oh, <laughs> ooh. These, in fact, have meanings. They're the tones of voice, but they convert to words. So when you convert those as well on top of that and take into account the fact that men interrupt women three times more than women interrupt men. And so a woman's less likely to be able to get there. So she's got to keep talking to overcome the fact this guy keeps interrupting her all the time. The bottom line is overall, as a rule of thumb, and most people instinctively kind of know this, that women speak a lot more than men. Uh, they have 14 to 16 brain centers to do it from versus six to eight brain centers for a man. So looking at the hard science here, yeah, they've got more capacity to do it. They've got brain centers on both sides of the brain. One of the things we found there when we researched brain damaged people, particularly in wars, had lost left or right side of their brain. Typically, man, if a man loses the left side of your brain, he may never speak again because most of his speech functions are on the left, whereas a woman gets the same injury. She just keeps on talking. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of difference because she's got brain centers on both sides. When it comes to researching things, when you start applying machinery and technology to researching stuff, it's hard. When you apply business outcomes, which you can measure in dollar values, it becomes much easier. So the answer then to whether or not power posing is effective is, okay, maybe the science is back and forth, but the business results speak for themselves. So either it works or it's a pretty damn strong coincidence that people who know it and do it well get results. And even if it's placebo, kinda who cares? It's working. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you see this in public speaking presentations where people have to stand up and, and speak in public, which we know in, in most countries, one of the biggest fears of everybody is speaking in front of large groups of people who are your peers. You know, strangers are much easier. People will get a better result in front of strangers because strangers don't know you, whereas your peers are difficult. The most difficult speech you'll ever give is a wedding speech about your sister or your brother because everyone's sitting there going, oh, yeah, Jordan, right, Jordan, yeah, and you know that they're thinking that. So uh, one of the things we find in teaching professional speakers or presenters and it comes back to visualization by giving the gestures and the poses 
and somebody says, what, you mean I've got to fake it? Yes, you've got to fake it. Some of the worst advice you can give anybody in the whole world, Jordan, is when you go to that interview, Jordan, just be yourself. Right. That's the worst advice you can give some people because being themselves is what's getting them no results. Right. That's how we got here in the first place. I've been myself the whole damn time. <laughs> exactly. So by training people, forcing people to physically change gestures to present and to speak, we know there measurably that they come off with a better result. They get higher ratings. They get more yeses. They get more congratulations and more sales and more bottom line dollars. So you, by forcing yourself to physically change not only your attitude, but your gestures and your gestures are linked to the attitude. Back in the seventies, I identified a gesture, which the word I gave it was the steeple. And it's like kind of almost like you're praying with the fingertips of one hand lightly touch the fingertips of the other. If you intentionally hold that gesture for two minutes, now, the word that goes with that gesture is confidence. It's one of the rare gestures that you can actually decode and get a meaning in isolation of other gestures. Normally, you've got to read context and you've got to look at other gestures with one gesture to understand what it means. Like words in a sentence, you know, one word can mean 10 or 20 different things, but you put words either side of it, make a sentence, then you understand what they mean by each word. With body language, it's the same, but with the steeple, it's one that seems to work in isolation. If you intentionally sit in a steeple position, two minutes or more, now I know Amy Cuddy's been fairly big on banging the two minutes because uh, that's pretty much the time it takes for a gesture to affect your attitude. Two things happen. First, you begin to feel like you're in charge of yourself. You're starting to feel confident about that. I can do this. I'm feeling like I've got myself together. Now, importantly, the person who sees you doing this steeple gesture, and they're not consciously aware that you're doing it, but they get a feeling Jordan, that you seem to be pretty confident about what you're talking about. In other words, you create an effect of confidence whilst making yourself feel confident. And so by taking on simple gestures of confidence, and steeples are, as a classic example of this, and then getting somebody to present in front of an audience, the results can be quite dramatic. And you see this with professional actors. Now, I also train professional actors. A professional actor simply is conning themselves and conning us that they're another character, that they're not themselves. And if they're great at doing this, we give these guys an Oscar. Of course, if you do it in business, we give them 15 years in jail as a result. <laughs> yeah. If they're really good at fooling themselves that they're another character, they convince themselves, they lie to themselves that they are the character they're playing. And usually between sets, they stay in character, the good ones. They don't go back to who they normally are. They remain in character sometimes for months or even years. Because if they remain in character and they convince themselves, they'll have the same body language and gestures that matches the emotions of the character, which is what makes them a great actor, which allows us to be convinced and give them an Oscar. Right. They're convincing themselves that they're somebody else. Their emotional states change as a result. Therefore, the gestures and the nonverbal communication are essentially flawless, or at least as close to flawless as they can be because of the belief system, the internal state change that they're able to create in themselves. Yes, exactly. And one of the things that we found, I've done a little work with the police and security, uncovering people who are telling the truth. I'm not telling the truth. I might be concealing information. And this is particularly interesting when you do it with international customs and people are coming through customs from different cultures, because as you mentioned before, different cultures can behave differently in their body language. One of the things I did back in the 80s, I came up with a system that worked incredibly well where we would isolate people by culture, that the Chinese would come down one lane, the Americans would come down another lane, the Indians would come down the third lane, the Greeks would come down another lane because they often would conceal information differently to each other. We had a very high catch rate, though, particularly on uh, illegal substances, not only drugs, but also with fruit and vegetables is the most common thing that gets caught. 
But then, of course, political correctness took over at equality and said, well, you can't separate people because it's discriminatory. We've got to get everybody on the same line, which they did. And the catch rate for drugs and the illegal stuff dropped dramatically because you can't legally separate people by culture anymore because it's politically incorrect. You just can't do it. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and our guest, Alan Pease. We'll get right back to the show after a brief word from our sponsors. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. For now, let's get back to Jordan and Alan. I know you've done a lot of training for world leaders. I mean, you've been a de facto super pro body language trainer, nonverbal communications trainer for a really long time, coming up with a lot of different research and executing on a lot of different studies. One thing that I read on your blog recently that I thought was quite interesting was keeping your fingers together, keeping your fingers closed and your hands below the chin when you talk commands the most attention. And so of course, all I do with this stuff is I also experiment with this. And so I found that keeping fingers open seems a little bit more open, a little bit more likable but keeping fingers closed is a more authoritative position. And so I thought, wow, that's a really unusual observation. I really like this. And since I know you've trained a lot of world leaders, one of which was Vladimir Putin shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I'm wondering when guys like Putin say, hey, come on down and train us in nonverbal communication, what are these guys trying to learn. First of all, how did you end up getting retained by Vladimir Putin? I mean, I can imagine that email coming in and you're just like, wait, what? Hold on a second. Let me check with the U.S. embassy and make sure I'm going to be allowed to go home after this, you know? <laughs> well, that's right. Well, it was interesting how that came about. I, I had a goal from the 1970s to give presentations in what was then called the USSR. That uh, was a very difficult goal to have because it was called the Iron Curtain in those days. And you really, as a Westerner, you couldn't get in there. And there were rumours would people would say, if you do go into the USSR, they'll steal your kidneys and you'll wake up in a bath full of ice and your wallet will be gone. And, all the, and I'd seen the James Bond movies and that's what happened. But I decided to go and do that. And when communism fell, when Gorbachev signed the whole thing off and resigned, Six weeks later, I, I made, had the objective to arrive in Russia and find a high-profile person. So the Putin connection came about by setting out 
to find a high-profile person that I could tag onto in this new rush or whatever it was going to be. We tried initially to work with Boris Yeltsin. He was the new president. But he wouldn't turn up for appointments and they said he was drunk most of the time and, and he was dancing and happy, which is what they wanted after 72 years of communism. And one of the guys in our crew, in our seminar crew, said he knew a guy who his cousin knew the new mayor of St. Petersburg, a fellow called Anatoly Sobchak. He was the first democratically elected politician. And he said he's a progressive. He loves the idea of training people. So we put a proposal to Sobchak to say that all your politicians are going on television with CNN and BBC, and they look a bit silly. They look like tough guys who aren't very friendly. And so I would run a seminar on how to look okay to the rest of the world, because the rest of the world was watching this new Russia to see what it was going to look like. And so he put on a seminar. He got the top 300 new politicians at the new Russia, and he held it at the Kremlin. A lot of people say they're so lucky and fortuitous. It's a matter of goal setting, and that's how these things happen. You decide to set goals, and once you decide what you're going to do, you'll see the answers they will appear. So I finish up at the Kremlin with Anatoly Sobchak. He wasn't there that day. Anatoly said, I can't make it. He said, but the deputy mayor will look after the meeting. And the deputy mayor was Vladimir Putin. His first political job after the KGB was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. That was his entry into politics. And uh, I can still remember him sitting in the front row, and I said, Vladimir, can you get me a coffee, please? I don't know if I say that now, but <laughs> but back in those days. You say, sure, do you want some polonium 212 in it or do you just want the coffee? <laughs> yeah, get me a bit of sushi while you're on the job, please, Vlad. A lot of these things, when you're as a presenter, you give a seminar on something like that. And I never thought much about it on the day, but on reflection, like 26 years later, I can see that that was a dramatic turning point for the people in that room. And for me too, because Vladimir Putin went on to become the president and the chairman, and there still is. And a lot of the other politicians who were there that day picked up a lot of the things I talked about and changed the way they present themselves on television. So they came across looking like reasonable people as opposed to the tough guys that they did from the communist era. Putin still does look like kind of a tough guy. I mean, I'm looking at a photo of this guy right now with no shirt on riding a horse, but this is constructed branding to look much, much more Russian and sort of Iron Man type of stuff. Some more Lenin, some more Stalin, some very Soviet leadership. Jason says, ah, that's just your screensaver. Nice one, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, first of all, kudos to you, because that's smart marketing. You didn't just sit around going, gee, I hope Vladimir Putin and his people email me. You said, all right, there's a new <laughs> nah. market here. Let me figure out how to go get it. And the answer is probably reach out to some sort of media agencies and just say, look, I'm a world expert on this. You probably don't have a budget for this, but it's going to be useful. And I'm going to knock your socks off. Fly me out to St. Petersburg or Moscow. And they said, sure, what the heck do we have to lose? Nobody's coming to Russia because we just opened up the borders where we don't shoot you when you try to get in last week. So sure, come on down. We're trying to build our international reputation. But how did Putin's training come across when he was KGB? Those guys know a lot of nonverbals already. What do guys in the former KGB specifically want or need to know? You hinted at looking like a normal person. These guys all started off that way. What needed doing or undoing or training or untraining or learning or unlearning? First thing you've got to remember about communist countries, which in Russia was 72 years of communism, is that smiling was not on the agenda for anybody in Russia. In fact, in the armed forces, if you were seen smiling, you were seen to be not taking your role seriously and you could be thrown in the brig, you could be arrested. And so smiling was off the agenda. And so you got a whole society of non-smiling people, which in most communist countries, you see that. And one of the toughest things I have today, I spend three months of the year on average in Russian-speaking countries. The new generation, Gen Ys, who are the first generation with iPhones, computers, university degrees, these guys, a lot of them speak reasonable English as well. They're the first generation. 
they've picked up the habit of not smiling from their parents and grandparents. And the hardest task I have is teaching when you're dealing with Westerners, business is not just within Russia now, it's worldwide. When you're dealing with Westerners and Europeans, you've got to smile because, as you've just pointed out, you see Vladimir Putin on television, he looks like a mean sucker of a guy, doesn't he? He really looks tough. However, in Russia, for the majority of older people, that's what they want to see. They want to see G.I. Joe, whereas Americans, well, you had George Bush, that's pretty close to G.I. Joe, but Russians want to see G.I. Joe without his shirt on, flying submarines, throwing people over his shoulder with his black belt on, fishing, diving, flying helicopters. They want to see that. And he's got a greater than 90% following. It has the biggest following of any leader in the world. Even if they make it up a lot, if you're more than 60% anywhere in the world getting voted positively by your voters, that's a huge result. But I spent a lot of time in Russia and older Russians, especially, they love this guy to bits because they remember the bread lines and the soup lines. The younger generations, the Gen Ys, they don't remember that. So So teaching these younger guys to smile, in fact, is a hard thing. And so when you and I see Vladimir Putin on television, we see a guy, a non-smiling, potentially tough guy. Russians see a strong-willed, wonderful leader. So it's a cultural difference in how we're perceiving this because Putin, in fact, is not the tough guy. He runs a big class of orphanages. He looks after orphans and old people. He's, he's a pretty soft guy. But overall, he is definitely the steel fist in the velvet glove. He is, but he doesn't go around shooting people and all the popular things that we like to have an enemy, and Russia's been the enemy, but Russia is really no longer our enemy. On television, they look like they're mean because that's a cultural difference. I suppose time will tell whether or not they're uh, our enemy or not. And yes, 90% approval rate in Russia, not totally convinced about the democratic polling system going on over there when they can select candidates based on what they're doing. But I guess it's a whole different show. I am curious, though, you spoke about the younger generation. Jason, you had a question about the younger generation as well, because look, a lot of us are on devices all the time, we're distracted. Are there changes in body language in the cell phone age when most people have their heads in a device or are otherwise distracted? Because it's not like nonverbal communication turns off, it seems to me like it would just change the context, right? Because now, if you're looking at somebody in a conversation or seated near a conversation, their body language would in theory have something to do with their internal state and also, of course, what's going on in the conversation. Now, there could be two conversations or three or 10 because seven of them are happening on a cell phone on social media, one's happening in real life and the other one is the internal state that person had when they woke up in the morning or when they walked out the door. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about that too is that read a study about 12 months ago, which was a very interesting one, a science study of paying attention and not in the past of the brain that operate when you're paying attention to something. And, and what the study showed that the Gen Ys, generally speaking, have around 10% less connections in the brain that deals with identifying emotions in the face. In other words, that somebody who's, say, 25 years of age is less likely than somebody who's, say, 55 years of age to know, Jordan, that you're feeling upset or feeling angry or feeling cheesed off or whatever the case may be. So the fact that they're less likely to be able to read you means that they're less likely to be able to pick where they should go next with the conversation. One of the biggest topics in the seminar business in the world in recent times has been the baby boomer generation who are still running big business everywhere and the smart kids who have the technology, who's the Gen Ys. There's an enormous gap between these two people. They just don't like each other because the baby boomers were raised in a generation where you look at somebody in the face when you talk with them. whereas for Gen Ys, that's pointless because they're running, as you said, they're running three or four conversations on their mobile phone at the same time. I think if it continues, eventually it suggests the newer, younger generations, the millennials and the ones that follow them, are again, even more or less likely to be receptive to reading emotions in people's faces, meaning that people are less likely to understand each other better, which creates more fiction, more tension. 
So you think people are actually, in a way, retarding their ability to recognize other people's emotions because we're interacting with people in ways that we're not evolved to interact? Well, I think that's exactly it, because I'm a baby boomer, and baby boomers and generations before us, we were all raised in an environment where you actually looked at a person when they were talking. The communication was one-on-one, face-to-face. And so you got to learn to recognize movements, emotions in the face, even though they weren't always, usually weren't conscious at all. It was an unconscious thing. You noticed that when Fred just flicked his left eye that he was getting upset about something, but you probably consciously didn't notice that. But now the newer generations are looking down more, not looking at faces. And that's where this science study last year I found very revealing showed that these new generations of millennials, Gen Ys generally, have less connections in the brain that allow you to deal with really emotions of the face. Now, we could say that if the next generation continue that same trend, that we are going to be recognizing how everybody's feeling less and less, which means more tension and more misjudgments. The fact that the Skype type television is coming back in, Skype calls and uh, FaceTime, that in fact is becoming an interesting thing because see, on FaceTime or on Skype, one of the things we do there, we stare at a person on Skype. We can actually look at their face because you can look at their eyes, you can look at their nose, you can look at their mouth. With face-to-face, you wouldn't dare do that because you'd be seen as being non-verbally intrusive. But on Skype, we can do that. And that's why it's so important if you're doing any business on social media or anywhere with a Skype or a FaceTime type call, you must pay attention to the background because the backgrounds are most people have let down there. They're looking at the back end of a sewer pit or something. You must dress the way you need to dress to look exact because people will be studying you close up in a much stronger way than they ever do face-to-face because on a screen, we've given ourselves permission to do that. With face-to-face, we've got to look away, particularly for Westerners, we look away at least one-third of the time in a social environment. We look back and look at a person two-thirds of the time. But on a Skype-type call, we're looking at them up to 100% of the time. The ability to read nonverbal communication, particularly for the upper body and the face, is likely for those people to become a stronger thing and they may be creating more parts of the brain to deal with that because they're now focusing more than probably any time in human history on a person's face because of the technology. This is interesting because it seems like something most people never think about. I mean, when I'm on Skype, it is all I can do to just remember that I'm even on camera, right? I've noticed this when I go out to dinner with my parents, for example, screens have a totally different effect on me because I was an only child, I watched a lot of TV. So if I go out to dinner with my parents, for example, I can't sit facing a TV because there's something in my brain that just barely, and I'm throwing myself under the bus here, just barely recognizes the difference between a real person sitting in front of me and a freaking box with the volume turned on too low (laughs) in a restaurant. I just can't do it because I was raised in part by this and I don't even watch TV now. I haven't watched TV since the 90s. It's not like I don't watch anything on Netflix, of course. There's recommendations every week on the show, but I took breaks for years and it's just so ingrained. So I do understand, I think a lot of people who are FaceTime, Skype, using video calls, and even just people using social, we don't act like we're in front. It's like we're performing for an audience that's not there but we're doing it in a way that doesn't quite make sense to other people's brains either. We'll see somebody on Skype is trying to do a big deal and tidy a new business with a new client, and they're probably just dressed casually and sitting in an office with crap all around the place looking out the window into a car park. And we do that because the technology, we see that in our brains differently as face-to-face. If you went face-to-face with that person, you would probably dress accordingly to how you need to look for them to want to say yes to you. And you'd look at all the environment. You'd look at your car. You'd look at your presentation. Yet you see high-powered people get on Skype. They look like the local unemployed down the park. 
We have to remember, of course, a lot of the things that we do in front of other people or things we think we're not doing in front of other people end up on social, of course, that goes without saying. I just think it's very interesting that we also have to pay attention as if that person is in the room. It's a tough mental leap because at the end of the day, you're really just staring at a little monitor. Well, you've got to pay even more attention than that, Jordan, because face to face when you're with someone, your brain is constantly distracted by the environment of what's happening around you. With a monitor, when somebody's there on a Skype type call, you are focusing completely on every detail of that person's face. You're not looking away out the window or anybody else. You're focusing and you'll see more things on a Skype call face to face than you will in a real life call because in a real life call, you're distracted by what's happening in the environment. Tell us about the compliment trick. I think this is an interesting practical, but I also want to deconstruct it a little afterwards. Okay, sure. One of the things about paying compliments, a compliment, as you mentioned, can be one of three things. You can compliment a person on their behavior, those things you see them do, on their appearance, which is something they might be wearing on their car or their environment, or their possession, something that they might own, a watch or a piece of jewelry or a motor car and so on. And one of the things that I decided to write this and put it into a movie a long time ago is because I'd read a study on people who compliment others that showed that when you compliment somebody, when they think back to you several days later, they think back to you as taller, thinner, and more attractive. Now, the reason I think you're as taller, more attractive, and thinner is because when you make a person feel good by paying them a compliment, they remember you in more glowing terms, which is taller, thinner, and more attractive. So rather than going on a diet, why not learn to pay compliments? And so that was where the compliment technique came out because most people don't know how to pay a compliment. And if they do pay one, it's normally on something physical. For example, oh, Jordan, I love your tie. Now, look, if that was true, if somebody said, Alan, I love your tie, offer to trade. Because if it's a sincere compliment, they'll say, oh, I'd love to have your tie. Usually that's not what they do, is it? And so develop the simple technique of paying sincere compliments. And it is a skill and it is a technique and you need to practice and practice. But when you deliver these compliments, nobody actually hears you doing it consciously. But there's something about you, Jordan, they start to like and say, you know, I don't know what it is about Jordan. I love that guy. When I'm around him, I feel good. And that's because you keep dropping in compliments about their appearance, behavioral possessions. We'll be right back with more from Jordan and Alan Pease after these quick messages. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now for the conclusion of our interview with Alan Pease. So this, obviously, I understand why something like this works. However, if we're constantly changing our nonverbals for results, if we're constantly complimenting people, don't we risk alienating people because we're being fake? Because really, if someone's complimenting me too much, I'd like to think I would be smart enough and observant enough to get suspicious here. Well, that's true too. In fact, when you start with any new skill that you've learned, it's like riding a bicycle. You get a bit wonky on it. You're likely to fall off and crash a few times until you've had a lot of practice at it. So when people start learning any new skill, it is quite obvious to a lot of people that they're doing it. But one of the things that happens when it becomes an integral part of who you are, you can just drop these into the conversation. I I can do it without even thinking it because I know when I was looking at your show, clearly it seemed to me that you've spent a lot of time thinking this show through and you've put together a structured program that gets results for people. And I thought, wow, this is really good. And my question was, how did you get started doing that, Jordan? I mean, tell me a bit about it. So the show was started because a long time ago, I lost my competitive advantage, which was naturally coasting through school or outworking everyone. I ended up on Wall Street and I realized everyone here is smarter than me. Everyone here is a hard worker. What can I do to gain an edge? And I knew that that had to do with relationships and networking, which in large part depended upon persuasion, influence, 
and things like that, which of course naturally led me to things like body language and nonverbal communication as a sub-skill set of those. And so I started working on those things. I started teaching those things when people asked me to, even though I swore up and down that I wasn't a coach. And we found ourselves having the same conversations every night in bars and restaurants, teaching people this stuff. So we started to burn them to CDs and then podcasting was invented and we thought, look, if we can just point people to this place on the internet, they can catch up to what we're talking and what we're teaching and what we're doing and we can give this away to the masses. And that's how this show began. Wow, that's really impressive. So you've done it at the coal face as it was, you know, real live stuff face-to-face with people and recorded and got a result, which I find that really impressive because I do that myself and uh, that is really good to think you could do that. So uh, how do you see the future going for yourself? Okay, let's stop it there. Now, it sounds like to a, an untrained person, we sound like we're just having a conversation, which we, we kind of are, but it's a structured conversation that I'm driving that's giving you the compliments. And so what the science shows is that next week when you think back to me, you'll think of me as taller, thinner, and more handsome, which I look forward to, Jordan. Well, I know that you're a tall, thin, <laughs> handsome guy. Am I wrong about that? I don't know. That's how. That's my memory of this conversation. <laughs> I must have complimented you earlier I in the I think you nailed it, man. Yeah, definitely. I like it. I understand why that works. But... If we're, again, if we're constantly changing our nonverbals or even our verbals in that previous example for results, don't we risk alienating people because we're being fake? I mean, we know we're being fake, right? Isn't it transparent? It is being fake. That's true. And it's like a professional actor. They fake an entire personality. And if they're good at it, as I said, we give them an Oscar and a couple of million dollars a year to buy drugs, which probably doesn't happen to you and me. <laughs> the old saying about, you know, fake it till you make it, in fact, rings true because all the gestures, attitudes, behaviors, and ideas that you've got, whoever you are right now, you've got that way with the same process of learning things and repeating things over and over. It doesn't mean that they work for you necessarily. A lot of things don't work for a lot of people, but you learn and repeated things which make you feel comfortable. Now, a lot of the skills and behaviors and attitudes that people have don't work for them at all. And so the ideal thing in life is to identify the things that don't work and then replace them with things like like a complimenting skill, which I don't have to think about that complimentary skill. I do it naturally. When I talk with people, I'm thinking about what it is about them that's good what's positive about them and what they're doing. I just talk in those lines. As a result, I get on well with a lot of people. You know, I get a lot of invitations to go to dinner and to parties and to people's places as a result. And most people don't get that because they don't know how to do it or they don't understand the importance of doing it. When you first do it, it does feel fake. Like anything, it feels awkward. You feel like you might fall on your head off your bike because it's a new skill. But eventually, it'll just become part of who you are, which is the way you got the way you are anyway in the first place. It sounds like what you're saying, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth here, Sounds like what you're saying is you do fake it for a little while, but eventually you learn to calibrate how to do this. And as long as you mean well and you mean to do this in an authentic way and not to get a certain result from the other person in a manipulative way, you'll learn to calibrate it and it'll be fine. And yes, it might come across as to try hard. However, people will generally forgive you if you're actually genuinely trying to be nice. Is that kind of where we're going with this? Absolutely. If you're trying hard and you're not real good at it, people recognize this, but they say, hey, look, Jordan's doing his best to try to make me feel good, provided your intent is positive. That's when people use this for an evil intent. They become professional con artists. One of the things that we found in studying people in some of the crazy religions and some of these crazy groups who actually believe what they're saying, they knock on your door to try to convince you to join their organization or their clan or their cult. And a lot of these people actually believe what they're saying because they've grown up with that particular cult or that particular idea. And that's all they know. So when they try to convince you by filming these people and playing back, you can't tell that they're not telling the truth because as far as they're concerned, they are telling the truth. To the rest of us, it sounds like a whole heap of garbage. But to them, 
they actually believe they're telling them the truth. And that's why they don't look like liars. It's when somebody is intentionally lying and not telling the truth and trying to cover up. That's when it becomes difficult. And a professional con man, a con artist can do that regularly. A professional actor does the same thing too, when you think about it. They're conning us that they're another character and we like it. It's beneficial. We enjoy it as opposed to being taken advantage of it. Right. We're inside. We're in on the joke when it's an actor. We're not, we're the victim of the joke, the butt of the joke. We know it's happening. Right. Uh, if somebody's intentionally lying, trying to con you, after a while, you get a thing called leakage. And leakage is where their real attitude starts to appear. And often it's in micro gestures, which for most people, particularly male brain people, particularly for men, is hard to read. That's why it's so much easier to con men than it is to con women. The truth starts to leak out of their performance and you spot it. So that's an interesting concept. One great example of this, perhaps, that I've learned from a friend of mine who works at a prison. I asked him, what's the scariest person in the prison? And he told us a story about this old guy that everyone loves. He's in there for a bunch of different crimes and everyone loves him and he's super nice and he's touchy-feely and every all the guys dig him and you know he's just a really kind old man on the surface however my friend looks at the cameras cuz he's a guard and he says when people are not looking and when he thinks that nobody can see him his face contorts into this absolute crazy man and he actually found out what the guy was in for and he had killed like upwards of 20 or 30 patients at a hospital where he was working by poisoning them, killing them, unplugging things, giving them too much of this, that, the other thing. He was just a crazy sociopath that knew exactly how to perform really well and has everyone fooled, and yet there's a reason he's in prison, and it's because he's a psycho serial killer. And so the leakage isn't coming through when people are talking with him face to face, so maybe in that respect it's not a great example, but the leakage comes through when people can see him and he doesn't know that he's being watched, and he actually takes his mask off, so to speak, for a second or two, they can really see that shine through at that point. Well, that's right, I mean, good lies, professional lies are hard to pick. Like, for example, most people think if someone's lying to you, they're going to look away more often. And for people who aren't skilled liars, that generally is the case. So, for example, in Western cultures, in large cities, when we're speaking socially, we gaze at someone around two-thirds of the time. We look away one-third, so two-thirds on, two-thirds off. We also know that as a general principle, someone's lying, they look away two-thirds, look back one-third. But a professional liar understands all this, and they will look you right in the eye and talk and tell you their lie. And you're likely, if you're not aware of this, to think, well, I think they're telling the truth because it feels right. That's because they're looking at you. Whereas we might think if they're looking away too much, they're lying, which for people who aren't skilled liars, that generally is the case, unless there's a cultural difference. Say, if you go to South America or China or Korea, they they look away most of the time because looking at you is seen as being an invasion of privacy. In fact, in Japan, they look at your throat because looking at your face is seen as an intrusion on privacy. And if you're not aware of that, you can go to Japan and be negotiating or interacting with a Japanese person and you start thinking to yourself, this guy's lying his head off, he won't look at me. He's thinking, you know, this Jordan guy, he's staring me down, he's too aggressive. And it's a cultural difference. So speaking of liars, let's wrap with this. Tips to spot a liar. This is tricky because there's a lot of context here and there's a lot of different things that can throw you off. Like you said, even the temperature can be a problem when you're trying to spot a liar. So at the very, very basic, basic level, we're not talking police interrogator level here, but let's go with some very basics. Can you give us a few tips to spot a potential liar? 
Absolutely. And you're right again in what you say, the people who are who are skilled liars or those who are professional interrogators or professional politicians, you know, they're professional liars, these guys. They get up and they don't necessarily say what they personally feel. They say what the party policy is. And if we like them, we buy it. And if we like the person, we'll also tolerate their misdeeds. I mean, you look at say, Bill Clinton. Everybody loves Bill Clinton. And whenever he walks into a room, he captivates everybody. They love the guy to death. But if you look at his history in black and white, didn't know who he was. They've got the white water thing. You've got all the interesting deals. You've got the Monica Lewinsky. You imagine if George Bush had a Monica Lewinsky. Americans would be absolutely outraged, probably surprised too, but absolutely outraged that he's got a girlfriend. Yet for Bill Clinton, it's all in the past. And the world accepts that as being okay because they like Bill Clinton. Talking about the average Joe who's not trained in professional lying or interrogating, there are a number of things you can look for. And you've got to look for what we call a cluster of things. That is, don't take one thing and say it's got a specific meaning because it's like taking one word in a language and saying that means a specific thing. The word dressing, for example, has 13 meanings in English. Depends how you use it. Like I was dressing after my shower, it means clothing. Now, past the dressing at a dinner table means it's a food. I've cut myself, do you have a dressing? It's a bandage. So there are 13 meanings for one word, but if you put words either side, it'll make a sentence. That's what you've got to do in looking for lies is look for a cluster of at least three things to be really accurate with getting a lie. If you could videotape a person before to see how they behave normally and then videotape them lying, that's where you can spot the differences because they're changing their behaviour. So things to look for that can give you good indications. You're never going to be 100%, Jordan, but you know, if you're better than 50%, you're beating the average person anyway. With If they're Westerners, and I'll put a cultural stipulation on this, Westerners increase their hand-to-face contact when not telling the truth. They touch their face more when they're not telling the truth? Westerners do? Westerners do. You know, we won't get this in Asia. Mr. Wong won't touch his face. He'll look you right in the eye and tell you the biggest lie ever. And you're likely, because you're an American or an Australian, to go for it because he looks like he's telling the truth. Chinese people will move their feet more. So their feet are more, you better have to look under the table to see what's going under there than look into his face. <laughs> so things to look for. Hand-to-face touching and nose touching being one of the most common. Back in the 70s, when I wrote about nose touching, we knew that people who lied a lot, we were using 16 millimeter film back in those days, when intentionally asked to lie, hand and nose touching was the most increased gesture we noticed with Westerners. At the time, I suspected that probably had something to do with mouth covering as a child, which turns out it didn't. It had to do with the fact when you're telling a lie, you increase your blood pressure, which causes a tingling in the sensitive tissues inside the nose. And that's why you're scrubbing holes and squeezing the nose when you're telling big lies. And you'll see this with boxers. You know, boxers are about to go into a match or sports people are about to go into a match will start squeezing in their nose and pulling at it because the blood pressure's up and it's making those sensitive nerves tingle. So nose touching is one of the first ones. But the person might have had an itchy nose, so you don't want to take that on its own. They might have had hay fever or a cold or the flu. So hand to face touching, ear touching, nose touching. Listening to verbal cues is interesting as well. If someone's going to intentionally lie, they say, now, I'm going to lie to Jordan. I don't want to get caught, so I better look convincing. So people who intentionally lie, who aren't good at it, start to overact the truth. So if someone's overacting the truth and they start to overact what they're saying, outcome phrases such as, look, to be perfectly honest, Jordan, now look, to tell you the truth, now if someone says to you, Jordan, look, with all due respect, Jordan, now what normally follows that? Disrespect. Whatever they feel comes out of the opposite. So I don't want to be nosy. Then they stick their nose in. I don't want to be rude. Then they insult you. <laughs> so a person's like going to overcompensate, but look, I don't want to, look, I don't want to be rude. But let me be perfectly honest. Well, look, I assumed you were being perfectly honest until you made that statement. Right. 
if they've got a habit of saying, look, to be perfectly honest, some people have a like a nervous tick. They just keep saying it over and over. It's just a tick. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not telling the truth. But if someone doesn't normally say, look, to be perfectly honest and to tell you the truth, if they don't normally say that, then suddenly it's dropped in. It can be a significant thing. And if they're doing it while touching their nose and looking away, Westerners will look away when lying. Asian people generally won't. They'll look you right in the face. And I know that uh, a lot of places they said, oh, it's politically incorrect. People like to pretend we all lie the same way. We don't. Cultures lie differently. If you don't understand this, you'll get out of the cultures and you'll get knocked over in business very quickly because you don't know what you're looking for. So verbal cues match with nonverbal cues and shifts of what's normal behaviour. And sometimes that's hard to know because with a new person, you don't know what their normal behaviour is. And if you're doing police interrogation with cameras, you can keep replaying tapes and see what's what's the usual behaviour used to be. So by putting these things together, so if I said to you, for example, I love listening to your show. Jordan, touch my nose, look down at the ground. And uh, to tell you the truth, you come up with some really good things. And with all due respect to your position, now, if that's happening, you're better off just to say goodbye, Alan. Goodbye, that one. Yeah, I want to just reiterate here that these are tips to spot a potential liar. You can't take one gesture as a tip off. You got to take at least three gestures or a cluster, as you mentioned, to determine if someone is lying. Increased hand-to-face contact, especially nose touching, but only with Westerners. and that their body language nonverbal communication has to be or should be congruent with their emotions. Of course, if they're not lying, a liar's body language will contradict what they say. And then you listed some phrases that may preface a lie, to be perfectly honest, to tell you the truth in all sincerity. So again, though, you could still have all of this and the person could be telling the truth. It's just a matter of getting enough of these in a group, especially if you have a baseline with that other person. In other words, if you know that person does not normally do these things, now you're cooking with gas. Now you've got something that may indicate he's lying, he or she is lying. You're never 100% conclusive. To be really conclusive, particularly with facial expressions, if you look at the TV show Lie to Me, which was Paul Ekman's work, and Paul Ekman is very, very good as a scientist at what he does, uh, where they went through and studied the movements of the face and the eyes, those things are very, very accurate. However, the reality is when you're face-to-face with someone, you miss most of that because you're so thinking about what you're saying and what they're saying in the environment, you won't see most of those. So most of the things in the Lie to Me type shows are, are good for police work and detective work or custom where you can replay a video, but in real life, you can't replay a video. Well, thank you very much, Alan, for coming on the show today. I know it's early morning over there in Australia, and I really appreciate your time and your expertise over the last few decades. And although, I gotta say, you're getting attacked on all sides, not you personally, but this work is getting attacked on all sides by modern science, but I guess that's how these things go, right? You notice an anecdotal trend, you work on it for a while, you get a bunch of results, the scientists, they get to catch up later, and we get to decide whether or not what they've found actually matters or not. At the end of the day, you're still getting results from something. Well, it's important too, because if science wasn't trying to debunk or or prove any particular principle, everything would become urban myth, and so you never know what works or what's real. Alan, thank you so much. Where can people find more from you and what you have coming up? Go onto our website, which is uh, Pease, that's my surname, P-E-A-S-E, dot TV, television, Pease.tv. What we're doing in Australia now for the first time, which is great. If you feel like coming on a vacation to Australia, we're running weekends, weekend boot camps for 30 people at a time. And if you want to get into intense how to get your life together over a couple of days, that's something that you definitely want to look at. They're great fun. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. All right, Jason, what do you think, man? I mean, not our usual fare in that we usually got the science behind this, and and Alan's just OG, I and mean, he's been doing this for so long. 
Here's what I think about this one. We've got the Dale Carnegie of body language on the show this week. That's kind of how I look at it. You know, Dale's old books didn't hold up all the time, but there's a lot that still holds up. And I think Alan's work is going to hold up for a very long time as well. And he's just a fun guy to talk to. I agree, man. He's just been around for a long time. He's talked about this a lot, as you can tell. And he's got a lot of content. Man, when I was doing the research for this, there were videos that were from the 70s or something like that, the one I mentioned where he's smoking and stuff. And that was he, a great video, yeah. I mean, there were like 42 different little body language things in there that at that time, nobody was talking about this stuff. Nobody at all. Yeah. So great big thank you to Alan. His book titles are many. The one I mentioned earlier on the show was The Definitive Book of Body Language. And of course, we'll be linking up to him and his stuff in the show notes. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank him on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And I'd love to hear your number one takeaway from Alan Pease. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. Don't forget, we've got those worksheets. If you wanna make sure you got all the key takeaways for each show, and this one is no exception, that link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. And I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends and enemies and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.